0: You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, yours and theirs, a show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Hello, everyone. Today's guest is Nancy Ortberg. When I launched the podcast, I knew I wanted to interview Nancy because she has such a diverse set of leadership experiences over the years. And I've always really liked the way Nancy thinks. She's led in the medical field, including direct care in an emergency room, but she's also had quite a lot of experience in church leadership and also nonprofit leadership. Nancy served as a teaching pastor for eight years at Willow Creek in Illinois. During that time, she led several initiatives, including Access. It was a weekly gathering for the 18 to 20-something generation, and it was revolutionary at the time. Nancy also served for over a decade with Pat Lencioni's consulting organization called The Table Group, Nowadays, she's the CEO of Transforming the Bay with Christ. It's a nonprofit organization that encourages churches to collaborate across the San Francisco Bay Area to promote the holistic gospel. Nancy's the author of several books. Her leadership book is called Unleashing the Power of Rubber Bands Lessons in Nonlinear Leadership. Nancy and her husband, John, live in the Bay Area where John serves at Menlo Park Church. They have three adult kids and one brand new grandchild. Nancy and I dug into a couple of sources of anxiety. One particular we addressed was a phantom strike, and we'll talk more about that in this interview. Nancy also had some great thoughts about the power of hobbies in a leader's life and how to figure out what hobbies are life-giving and which ones are not. But I started the interview by asking Nancy what her thoughts were on what she wished men knew about women in
1: leadership. That's a great question. Um, I think the first thing I would say is that there's not all that much difference. Um, you know, I think we, we camp on the differences so much so that then the differences tend to take over as monumental. I think what's true about great leadership is great leadership is great leadership, whether it's in a huge corporation or in a tiny little mom and pop shop. Great leadership has got essences that is the same, whether it's in a male or a female body. And I don't know about you, but I don't wake up every morning with my first thought being, I'm a woman, I'm a leader. I guess you don't probably wake up thinking I'm a man, I'm right. a leader. You know, leadership has qualities that are innate across gender. And having said that, I do think there are some differences that are important. And I think women bring a really important texture to leadership that is often missing. I also will tell male CEOs or pastors when, a, if a woman cries, you you seem to shut down. It's just water. It's not <laughs> it's not going to hurt you. It's not going to scar you. It's just water. It's the same thing that happens in another person when the vein on their forehead pops out. Okay. It's all about feeling like a lack of control or anxiety. It just comes out in different forms. So don't be afraid of the anger and don't be afraid of the tears. It's just all somebody frustrated.
0: Okay. Very good. That's great. So obviously our podcast really focuses on anxiety. And the two ways we notice it is the anxiety inside of an individual, but we also like to pay attention to the anxiety in a group. Um, Can you give us a story where you have seen anxiety become contagious in a group, like where people catch anxiety the way you catch a cold?
1: Oh, it'd be hard not to think of one, you know, especially in a meeting situation when people have disparate opinions. And the push to get people to understand your side, Um, like I said a few minutes ago, anxiety comes out in lots of different forms. Some people shut down, some people power up, and pretty soon you see something happening in a group where you're discussing an issue, and it went from zero to 50 in just a couple of minutes, and you're kind of sitting there going, what just happened here? What just happened here? And the hard thing about what you're describing is it's so unconscious, That it takes a leader stopping and saying, I need to make an observation here. I think this is what's happening. Okay. And I think we need to take a break and take a breath and come back to the table really focused on the ideological debate that's going to get us to the best decision, not the personal um, preferences that you hold or the need for your way to win because somehow your ego is involved in that.
0: And then okay. to be able to say,
1: I do this all the time, like to join and say, I, I'm guilty of this too. We all are. But I think that's what's happening here because the, the level of energy has just increased rapidly way out of proportion to the issue. But you're right. I love that. It's like a common cold. It is contagious and it's um, microscopic. So you don't see it happening.
0: That's good. Yeah. One of the things we mention in our materials is that people pay attention to content, what's being said. But they react to process mm, the way yes. people are reacting. That's kind of what you're saying.
1: Yeah, but you just what? said it way better and more memorably. <laughs> I like oh, that. Oh, wow.
0: I mean, I've been, I've uh, been, that's why you have the podcast. For years. Yes. Yeah. I
1: love it.
0: Um, what would you say to like a type A leader or somebody who's so driven by, by content, getting the task done, getting the agenda mm-hmm. dealt with? What a, a couple or even just one easy tool that they could use to start paying attention to process?
1: Well, I think it kind of connects what we've just been talking about for the, the type A leader who's very driven and pushes, uh, what they fail to realize is that's mostly about anxiety. Hmm. It doesn't look like anxiety. It looks like efficiency and effectiveness, and there may be elements of that. But anytime you're trying to push your agenda past where people currently are, that's that's anxiety based or fear based. And so for that leader to have enough EQ to slow down enough to bring people on board or to hear disparate opinions that might actually sway their direction. That's good. Um, Speed is not always our friend. And I love for things to move quickly. But uh, a lot of times what we get are people that have acquiesced but aren't really engaged and on board. That's right. And that will sabotage the direction sooner or later.
0: Right. They're doing what you want them to do, but you've lost their heart. Right. You've lost that trust. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then to stop, you know, sort of first of all, to realize I'm really acting out of anxiety. And, you know, so much is being written now on the best gift a leader can give an organization is a non-anxious presence. Mm, Yeah. Well, that will take the rest of our lives working on that, won't it? Yep. So to realize I think I'm being driven by anxiety right now, even though it doesn't feel like it. The second thing is to stop and ask a question of the team or the person. Um, um, Am I pushing this too fast, too hard? Um, Are there things that you feel like you need to say to me right now that I'm not giving you time or space to say, and then I'm just going to be quiet for a minute and let you gather your thoughts? Because sometimes in our hurry to explain things and push for a decision, we really do trample right over people, and we don't know we've trampled over them until later when they begin resisting the very decision we thought they said yes to. And sometimes we get frustrated with them and say, well, you said yes, why are you changing your mind? When really it's our responsibility that we push too fast, too quickly, and didn't give them time to catch up.
0: Oh, that's really good. Yeah, I've seen that happen where somebody will give their word, but they didn't really mean it because they simply didn't know in the moment how to express. How about a time where you've seen a group have the same recurring pattern over and over? Like, for example, the person who always have a, has the meeting after the meeting, they never speak up in the meeting, but they always have their inside meeting or mm-hmm. the person who never speaks unless they're called on and then they have all the power in the room. Could you talk to an example like that?
1: Yeah, we just had a team meeting a couple of weeks ago where um, one person on the team, they're both really gifted leaders. Uh, one person on the team, when conflict begins to arise, will tend to avoid and shut down. And the other person will tend to power up and move really honestly a little bit towards being mean Hmm. and just watch those dynamics play out on a regular basis to finally say, hey, guys, let me describe what's happening here. And to reiterate what I just said to you and say, this is not helpful. Um, One of the categories that I love, um, you know, when when you think about the brain, when the brain first gets access to new information, it takes a pause at our, our amygdala. In kind of our primitive brain. And the only two choices that the amygdala has is fight or flight. That's all it has. Now, the cerebral cortex, if you can, that's why people will say, take a breath, give it a minute, push that thinking up to the cerebral cortex where there's really almost an infinite set of possibilities and creative problem solving available. What I love about Dallas Willard's approach to spiritual formation and leadership is there are only two forms of lovelessness and they are fight and flight. So when we operate out of the amygdala with only those two reactionary choices, we either shut down or we power up. We are basically saying to the other person, I despise you. I do not love you. Mm. And there is a better way to take a breath and say, we need to come back to the table, avoiding avoidance and avoiding powering up and having a peer-to-peer conversation and asking questions so that we can understand each other better and therefore love each other better and therefore make better decisions.
0: Uh, that's that's really good. Yeah. One one of the things we found with our team is the power of the debrief. Like oftentimes in the moment, mm. you're just not able to notice all the dynamics. Mm. But we'll often just revisit an encounter and together we'll just kind of go through it blow by blow and just say, Here are the moves good. that happened. And that we found a lot of healing in what we'd call it repair work.
1: That's a great term for it. And just that you give it some space after the awkward meeting, you know, people yeah. will rush to say, you have to, you have to reconcile by the end of the meeting. It's like, yeah, except you don't. Because yep. what you're saying is the Holy Spirit now will do something in each of our hearts when we have space that none of us could do. And then we come back and unpack it. And a lot of the tension has gone out of it by then. And so we can hear that's things right. we might not have been able to hear.
0: That's right. Yeah, that's right. The, 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 the reactivity is eliminated and you can just have a heart-to-heart conversation.
1: Less, less, Yeah,
0: sure. That's fair. Yeah.
1: And then one of the things, you know, I did, I worked with Pat Lencioni for about 12 years and one of the most powerful things he'll say is the greatest force on a team is peer-to-peer accountability. So it's one thing when your boss keeps saying you need to stop powering up or you need to stop avoiding. When everybody on the team is saying, yeah, you do that, you shut down. She's right. Mm. He's right. You start getting your peer voices commenting, all of a sudden, you really do need to change. You need to consider yeah. your own internal journey to be a better leader.
0: Well, and surely the boss can help by modeling that and creating a culture yes. that gives that permission. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Absolutely.
0: Okay, one of the ways we've found helpful to manage anxiety is just to diagnose it. So mm. what we've done is give labels because anxiety is like this giant mess of like blah. Yeah, but if we can put names to <laughs>
1: of it, blah. Yeah, I like uh, that.
0: Yeah. Mm. So uh, one of the sources of relational anxiety is what we call a phantom mob. We've um, mm. Been in church leadership a long time. Phantom mob would be where one person comes representing a secret group. You know, have access to them. Mm-hmm. They're nameless and faceless, but that representative is bringing a critique or something like that.
1: Have you ever happened? Right. Have you
0: ever had that situation happen?
1: <laughs> no, never. Next question. <laughs> no, of course I have. Uh, I remember um, when we were on staff at a church in Chicago. My last ministry there, which was for about five years, was a ministry called Axis, right. and it was really targeting Gen X. It was one of, one of the first churches that kind of gave permission and space to say, how do we reach this generation?
0: That's right. Yeah.
1: And uh, I took over after about three years of them starting when their leader had to leave. And I think this group of young people was not hoping for a middle-aged mom to be their next leader. <laughs> so the first six or nine months of my leadership there was fraught with all that Christian niceness where they were smiling at me on the outside, but inside, like leaving me out of meetings and... Anyway, so I had to march through that for nine months to really build relational trust. And then we got to a good place and maybe a year and a half into my leadership there, Steve, who was our associate director, came into my office one day and said, can I talk to you about something? And I said, of course, you can talk to me about anything. I have an open door policy. Come in, sit down. And then he started off by saying, "Um, I'm not the only one that feels this way. (laughs) I thought, oh boy, here we go. He's brought his phantom mob with him. And then he went on to say, um, your meetings suck. And I thought, hmm, there's no Oreo cookie approach here. We're not going with the two good things (laughs) and then say the one hard thing. Yeah. And then he said, when you first came to lead us, your meetings were great. They were engaging and creative and we just loved them. And after about a year and a half, it's like you're spinning other plates and you've dropped this one and you don't even know it and we're dying. now." on the outside, I smiled and gritted my teeth and said, tell me more. And inside, I was thinking, dude, you still have amniotic fluid behind your ears. You are so young. You don't even know what I do every day to protect this ministry from the rest of the organization. I am working so hard. And then I feel like once again, the Holy Spirit whispered to me, what part of what he just said to you isn't true? Whether or not he needed a phantom mob to give him the courage to come into my office and say a really hard thing. It's kind of, uh, you may have to blurt this out, it's kind of chicken shit, but it's kind yeah. of okay. And I'm the leader. And so I did say, Tell me more. And he was right. I had put so much time and effort into our meetings and then just mindlessly thought, Okay, that one's going fine. Now I'm going to pay attention to other things. And I had actually turned the leadership of that meeting over to somebody else on our team and it was just drowning. And so the next day I came into our all staff meeting for our, our ministry and just said, Hey, Steve was in my office yesterday and made it really clear that he's talked to all of you. And you know, they're all now looking at their feet and very embarrassed. And I just said, I think Steve's right. I think in the future, what will be a better process is for us to have that conversation as a team and for you guys not to be afraid or feel like you have to have it off to the side, but you can come to me, but he's right. So let's talk about what were the elements of the meeting that were really helpful? Um, sorry, guy that's sitting here that now is running the meetings, but they're telling you you're not doing a great job, so I'm going to take it back over. Let's all be adults and have this conversation. And it really led to great outcomes, not only in the meetings, but also in our inter- oh, wow. relationships. Yeah.
0: that's a great That's a great way to model it. Why do you think phantom mobs hurt more than just someone coming by themselves?
1: Well, I mean, then you're left with who said that your your mind, it's like a 360 review that's anonymous. And you're thinking, if I can just argue against these people, or then you're getting paranoid because you're thinking how many other conversations like this are they having? So it really sets up a a culture of suspicion and fear and sabotage. It's very, very um, dysfunctional and it will, it will erode a team's trust quicker than almost anything. So it's very unhealthy. Yeah, But to move past it, you have to name it and talk about the reasons why we're doing this. And then you have to say, as a, I think as a leader, guys, I've done this. I have done this before. I have been guilty of this very thing. Here's why we can't do it. And really have those open, honest conversations in the team meeting.
0: Yeah. And kudos to you for just getting it out in the open. I think one of the reasons it hurts so much is what you said before is you don't know how many conversations are there? How right. strongly does everyone really feel? And then right. I think you end up filling in the gaps in your own mind, right? And you do it to a pathological level. Yeah.
1: Well, and anytime there are, it's just a really bad way for to communicate on a team, isn't it? It's a really bad way. Yeah. So it's like we can continue doing it this way and our team is going to be a mess. Or we can say, this is a very poor start, so let's get better and do it differently. Yeah. And then you have to let it be okay when people say things and they don't say them very well. You can't get easily offended by the way they say it. You got to start with the issue and then come back to, I don't think you said that very well and let's work on that. But if that becomes the focal point, you will always lose the issue and somebody will become the hero and somebody will become the villain and somebody will become the victim. Hmm. And that's a great framework for a vaudeville villain show, but it's a really bad framework for a team.
0: That's really good. Let's turn to more personal anxiety. One of the theories we have is that Mm -hmm. um, if you can intervene earlier in anxiety, you can start to manage it. So anxiety Mm -hmm. typically comes physiologically. And the way we say it Mm -hmm. is it either comes in a, a spinning mind, a racing heart or a tightening gut, Mm. where do you think? For all
1: three of the above. Sure.
0: But oftentimes it starts one place, like you you first notice it. So where would that be for you?
1: Oh, racing mind, 100% for me. That's where it would start. Absolutely. And the the tricky thing about anxiety is I used to think that was nothing but a sign of a really active and good mind. Mm and good leadership. And the older I get, I've done a lot of Enneagram work, which has really yep. helped. Oh my goodness. Are you but a to realize, three? No, I'm not a three.
0: Ah, no. What's your not number? Are you close. willing to share your number?
1: I'm a seven.
0: Are you're you looking for yeah, a party? I'm, okay. I'm
1: If it's not fun, I am suspicious. Something is wrong. But okay. what was fascinating about the Enneagram is It took what even I thought were the best parts of me, my need for adventure, my need for a new idea, my ability to think of lots of things at one time is, you know, and again, there are good things in there, but it's also largely motivated by fear and anxiety. And I remember when I read that, I thought, no, it's not. Uh Uh-uh, no. Oh, wow. Oh, I'm going to have to think about this. And so not only realizing every single person struggles with anxiety, everybody, what does it look like in me? And then, how can I recognize the early signs, and what are the helpful interventions I can do to take me down into a place that's not born out of fear?
0: Right. So let's talk about that. So in my case, anxiety begins for me in a spinning mind, exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And What's your enneagram uh, number? I'm a three.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay.
0: that's why. Um, that's why I thought maybe a three, because I think there is a commonality yeah. of a mental yes. productivity. And uh, Absolutely. I, I'm I'm typically a type A driven need to look sure. impressive kind of guy. Right. And I think without my chaplaincy training I'd be an ass basically. Yes, I'd be yes. unlivable. Well, and that's
1: the eight. Yes.
0: Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I was raised yeah. by an eight, so that's a whole other story.
1: Well, and eights are great. I love eights. Sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, for me, it starts in my mind. And one of the ways I know I'm anxious is if it's the last thing I'm thinking about when I go to bed, if it's the first thing mm. I'm thinking about when I wake up, that's when I know mm. it's time for intervention. How do you yeah. know when you're anxious? Could you put words to the specific thing you're doing?
1: Well, I think both of what you said, you know, I find it harder to fall asleep. Once I'm asleep, I'm usually okay. But the the racing of the yeah. mind, uh, first thoughts in the morning, and then just, um, Going too many directions at once uh, Mm. during the day, the mind racing between thoughts. You know, for the seven, they'll actually refer to it as monkey brain, which is not very flattering, but my mind kind of pinballing from thought to thought to thought. And here's the, you know, I used to be an emergency room nurse. There are times when that skill is really important to be able to do that. Um, But there are times when actually it just interferes and it really is about anxiety. And so. Um, I have a little card that I keep in my car that says, be still and know that I am God. And I try for 10 or 15 minutes every afternoon, because I find my mind will spin much more in the afternoon. In the morning, I'm kind of slow, kind of moving slow. And I will try to, because I drive a lot with my job, find a place that's quiet and sit for 10 or 15 minutes. And I don't even try to pray. I just try to be with God, sit still.
0: Good. Yeah.
1: And then that question, do you really believe I'm at work when you're not, Nancy? What would be different in my mind if I really believed God was at work and it all didn't depend on my ability to think about 20 things at once and hold it all together? That's that good. I am not God. And then I love this. There's a study that just got finished between Azusa Pacific University, Duke University, and Notre Dame University. And they were looking at sustainability in the senior pastor role, although I think you could apply it to most leadership roles. And it was, Chris Adams at Azusa Pacific University, here's what caught my attention. When he called me to talk about it, I was sort of half listening because I knew knew what the answer was going to be. And he said, let me tell you what the answer wasn't. It wasn't spiritual practices. And I said, oh, you have my attention right now because that would be such a predictable answer. He said the second thing it wasn't was going back to class and getting more seminary degrees. Not that either one of those two things are bad. The number one predictor of sustainability in a senior pastor role is do you have a hobby that you practice on a weekly basis, and when you practice it, you lose track of time? Mm -hmm. Now, that is the most theologically profound answer you can imagine, because you're engaged in something that doesn't have value in the sense of work. And when you're doing it, the earth is still spinning on its axis, and you had nothing to do with that. Good things are still happening in the work you do, and you had nothing to do with it. It is the easy yoke of Jesus, and it is ridding yourself of being Atlas when you are carrying the weight of the world on your shoulder. It is about ridding yourself of anxiety. I just think that the findings of that study, and they're using it now to work with senior pastors in their spiritual journey to really incorporate those practices in their lives as a way to quell anxiety.
0: It's profound. It's actually, we'll get to this, but it's the last question I ask every guest. Because in my own life, I'm a lead pastor. It's so easy to conflate being God's employee with God's child, get them switched. Yeah. And uh, so I actually am, um, I would say militant about my hobbies. And I mm, only do good. things that I can in no way parlay into my ministry. So for me, Ooh,
1: that's good. Like what do you do?
0: Oh, fly fishing. Um
1: Oh yeah. yes, love fly fishing. Yeah.
0: I love nature. I love God's creation. I have a I just have a real obsession with wildlife. It's an experience of worship for me. Yeah. I So you
1: go out and kill it, that's perfect. No,
0: actually, and in <laughs> in Colorado, <laughs> it's all catch and release. So all we do is freak them the hell out and then release them back yes. into the water. And stun yeah.
1: them for the so they have to go to fish therapy.
0: Yeah, that's right. They have to go tell their friends what happened. Yeah. Uh and then for me, yeah. um, playing and listening to music, even though I could be on our uh, music team at church, I, I play guitar, um, mostly just for my mm-hmm. own pleasure. And to feel human, to feel alive. Yeah, there and, you go. And then, you know, my my wife and kids, anything with them is fun. Yeah, oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. So we'll
0: get to that for you. I've got that. So you're
1: practicing this very thing. I love it. Yeah.
0: No, I think it's huge. I I think um, particularly if you're a productive minded person, intentional Mm non-productivity and being able to receive a gift from God and not twist it into service, I think is
1: huge. I love that. Intentional Mm non-productivity. That should be tattooed somewhere.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Probably on someone else. I like that. Yeah. Um,
1: Yeah, absolutely. Me too. All right. Let's get to
0: the next question. Um, You could name, I'm sure, 50 triggers that make you anxious. But we have found great power Mm. in simply naming them. So, for example, in my life, um, I have a chronic need to be impressive. I have a Mm. chronic need to look smart. And so if someone thinks I'm Mm. stupid or if they misunderstand me, I get very anxious. Uh, But now that I know that, I'm less reactive. Would you be... Willing to name two or three triggers for you?
1: Oh, heck yeah. Um, New ideas. Like there could be fun in those. That could be an adventure. And so sometimes I will have team members that will say, let's not talk about any more new ideas until we have executed well on the ones that we have right now. Um, And, you know, the executing well can sometimes feel boring to a seven. It's actually not. But um, I will definitely feel like, ooh, if I could just uh, go down the road of this new idea because I think there's yep. something here. Well, they're, they're very well maybe, but you may have to wait on it and not move down it Good. too quickly right there. For sure, I will struggle to stay in the moment and do the harder work of execution. Yep. But we'll find out when I do, the joy of something actually happening, even close to how we imagined it, is the payoff for that but I will have to watch that a lot. How
0: do you do with being misunderstood? Does that make you anxious?
1: Um, I would say sometimes yes and sometimes no. As a seven, probably not as much as a three would be. Okay. But definitely would have the need to say, uh, oh, I think we need to talk about this because I don't think you're clearly understanding what it is I was trying to say to you. Yeah, I, I think the need to over-explain sometimes. Okay. Or explain too quickly instead of, it's okay if somebody doesn't understand me perfectly all the time. It's not okay if I didn't explain it well, but it happens and it's okay. And to let that go sometimes when you need to let it go can be hard.
0: Let's try it this way, Nancy. What are you afraid of? Mm. Mm.
1: Uh, boundaries, not not having freedom. Okay. Um.
0: Being, being trapped.
1: trapped in routine. Being trapped. Yeah, being trapped in routine and same old thing every day, Groundhog's Day. Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. That'll, that'll, that would be
1: at the core of the fears of a seven and mine definitely.
0: You resonate with that. Yeah. 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 Uh, this is the most questionable, uh, personal question I ask. When do you most feel loved in your life?
1: Hmm. Uh, a couple of thoughts pop into mind immediately. Like you said, when I'm with my family and my husband and we're just enjoying each other's company, um, and then absolutely nature, absolutely feel, um, almost parented by nature. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Can you say
0: a little more about that? That's rich.
1: Oh, you know, I think growing up in, in California. It kind of is in our blood. And then moving to Chicago for nine years, I realized how much that was such a critical connection for me to God. And I felt like I was without it for such a long time. And we moved back to California 15 years ago. And the, the deep sense in my soul, I get that I am home yeah. is very profound. Yeah, And there's something about the grandeur of it that speaks to eternity that I love. And then just the beauty of it. Um, there's a great passage in Isaiah 29 where God is mad at his people. So he tells Isaiah, you got to go tell him why I'm mad. And it really is the discrepancy of the internal and the external, you know, my, my people, they honor me with their lips and they praise me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. They have turned, uh, religion into a set of rules made up only of men, by men. And so the complaint is religion has deteriorated into a set of rules and the insides and the outsides don't match. And I would expect the next verse would say, therefore, tomorrow we start a read through the Bible program. And that's not what he says. He says, therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. And I think often another set of rules around spiritual practices is not nearly as helpful as being in a transcendent place where there's wonder and awe and what that does for our souls. Yeah, exactly. Oh, great. Exactly. And California is full of thin places.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and when you mention that nature moves you, Chicago's full of wind, but that doesn't count.
1: Chicago is full of no nature at all and flat as a pancake. So, yeah. People are great. <laughs> the people are great, but wow. Yep.
0: Good people, good buildings, good pizza.
1: You know, the pizza's good museums. no, the pizza's highly overrated. Oh. Highly overrated, but that's okay. a whole other podcast, right?
0: Sure. Yep. <laughs> Well, then this last question, I mean, I think I know where you're going with it, but I'll ask it anyway. What specific activities or places Mm. make you feel most human and alive?
1: Oh, man. So hiking. John and I love to hike. And we have so many. We have the coastal hills, coastal mountains in between us and the ocean. The ocean for sure. I'm a big ocean girl.
0: Being in it as well Um, as being near it. You like to get in the water?
1: Absolutely. Oh, yeah. John and I... Uh, took up surfing about five years ago.
0: Outstanding.
1: And I have never loved anything so much that I'm so bad at. Like if you saw <laughs> me, you think, oh, that's so cute. You learned a year ago. It's like, no, no, I've been doing this for a couple of years, but I can't do it very often. I, I lose track of time. I absolutely lose track of time when I'm doing it. And I, there are few places I feel more alive and content than in the ocean surfing on small waves. I'm my dad. Um, And then I, I do love fly fishing. I don't get to do it very often. And I always have to have a guide with Mm -hmm. me because I'm always tangled up in the trees, but that's another example of getting lost in time, reading a great book uh, road trips. Oh my gosh. I love a road trip. Those kinds of things. Um, A great conversation with a good friend or a family member where we're eating something fun and just deeply immersed in conversation, um, both spiritual and just life. Those are the things that I feel most alive in. It's great. Yeah.
0: Nancy, thank you so much for your time. This has been a really rich interview. I really appreciate it.
1: I love the focus of this podcast because I think if all of us as leaders can take seriously the fact that we do struggle with anxiety. And what that looks like, our organizations and our lives and our families and our friendships would be so fundamentally different. Yeah,
0: I really appreciate that. I I would say our thesis in a nutshell is that burnout has more to do with anxiety than workload.
1: Yes. And
0: if you want to be more productive, you work on yourself and you'll get further.
1: That's so well said, my friend.
0: For more resources and show notes from today's episode, go to managingleadershipanxiety.com or stevecusswords.com. They'll both take you to the same place. This episode is a production of Steve Cuss and Brendan Reid.